0: Bakers, fresh for everyone.
1: Blog Talk Radio.
0: Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the Social Psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of interviewing uh, author Frank Joseph. Frank Joseph has written several books, including Before Atlantis, Advanced Civilizations of Prehistoric America, and he was also the editor-in-chief of Ancient American Magazine from 1993 until about 2007. The current book that we actually are interviewing uh, Frank Joseph this evening on is entitled Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, The Real War of the World. I find this topic personally very interesting to me, and I am excited that we're going to have Mr. Joseph get into uh, this topic area with us this evening. In terms of the material that we're about to go over, Joseph presents a comprehensive military history of armed confrontations between humans and extraterrestrials in the 20th and 21st centuries. He explains in his book that with the development of atomic bombs and ballistic missiles, the frequency of extraterrestrial intervention in human affairs has increased dramatically. His book documents incidents, including the explosive demolition of U.S. munition factories in 1916 by unearthly aerial vehicles, the Red Baron's dogfight with a UFO during World War I, Foo Fighter sightings and battles with Allied and Axis combatants during World War II, and eyewitness reports from encounters during the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War in Iraq, and the ongoing hostilities in the Middle East. This examines the evidence for the shootdown of flying saucers at Roswell and Aztec, New Mexico. Alien sabotage of nuclear weapon systems, and in-flight abductions of United States Air Force and Soviet officers and airplanes. There is a lot of photographic evidence presented for the Battle of Los Angeles, which occurred three months after Pearl Harbor, and the details of Operation High Jump. The United States Navy's defeat in Antarctica by extraterrestrial forces 17 months after the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, while also uncovering evidence of secret Antarctic German bases. The exciting thing about this book, more than anything else, is that you get a clear chronology of the information. It gives us the opportunity of utilizing everything that could give an average person a broad overview of this topic it's with great pleasure that i get to introduce frank joseph to the show mr joseph welcome hello. to the show hello yes, yes. uh welcome to the yes, show. yes i'm here great uh hopefully we will not have any technical difficulties i know your call was previously dropped so hopefully that won't occur going forward <laughs> i, I uh just intro i just introduced you uh regarding the information regarding uh, your book, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited to get into this information, and one of the things I wanted to ask you first was what prompted you to uh, write this book?
2: I guess uh, I was prompted uh, about 25 years ago to begin with. I was in Egypt doing some research on a topic which had nothing whatsoever to do with uh, UFOs or extraterrestrials—nothing like that at all. And while I was there in the research library at the Cairo Archaeological Museum, I came across something called the Thule Papyrus. And the Tule Papyrus describes a, uh, a sighting that was covered all of the upper—excuse me—the lower Nile Valley, um, and this took place. Uh, 1,457 years before Christ. In other words, almost 3,500 years ago, where the Egyptian army was called out by Pharaoh Thutmose III, one of the great pharaohs of the New Kingdom in Egypt, because there was literally a flotilla of what they described as fiery disks, or disks of fire in the sky, and that these things were seen over... A several day period. And uh, this was the very first mass sighting uh, of UFOs ever documented. It was it's very excellently documented in the Thule Papyrus. It's a military report. And I believed then that this was something that was real, that it actually had happened. Many years later, my wife, Laura, suggested that I use this terrific sighting that was done during Thutmose III's time as the basis for the first comprehensive study of military encounters with extraterrestrials in other words this is the, of all the thousands of ufo books out there until mine came along there wasn't one that devoted itself entirely military records exclusively almost exclusively military records that document the history Of human conflict beginning actually in the year 1916 until the present time between Earth forces and these how else I can describe them uh, as forces that uh, do not exist on this planet that there has been military interaction that there have been deaths on both sides there have been um, some very serious encounters involving virtually all of the armed forces of Earth for a a little more than 100 years now. That's
0: incredible. Let me, in terms of this particular focus of your book, the military encounters aspect of it, what motivated you to write this topic and center it around the military encounters themselves?
2: Because um, in in writing a military report, most of our our listeners may not be aware of this unless... um, they happen to have been in the armed forces, that if you give a report, it doesn't make any difference whether you're in the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, whatever, if you give a military report to your superiors of something that has happened, you are obligated under law to tell the truth. And that if you misrepresent anything, if you consciously bring to your report something which is not true, you'll go to Leavenworth because it is a federal crime. So, therefore, when we're looking at the military reports uh, of the U.S. military, and I have other militaries there all other parts of the world, which are based on the same fundamental principle that you have to tell the truth, uh, a terrific amount of very persuasive material comes about. It's not like somebody who claims to have seen something, it's an unprofessional witness. Well, here in the military, you become a professional observer. You know what to look for. You know what to... To uh, uh, keep in your memory. You're trained in that regard. So we're, we're talking about trained observers who are giving truthful reports under the law. And I cannot imagine a better, a more credible body of evidence. Um, now, my book, uh, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, you'll see that every single incident that is described in that book has been documented. It is one of the largest source material, bibliography, not bibliography, but source materials that I have ever put together in any of my books. And that's because I don't want to just repeat what somebody else has said necessarily. I want to be able to document this with government. Most of it is are government documents. And these documents are available to our readers as well. They can go and find out. I provide the sources for all of them. And that's why I wanted to do this. I've read a lot of books about UFOs. My father was a uh, terrific astronomer who was a rather ambivalent on the possibilities of life elsewhere. Um, but nonetheless, I find that uh, this was the most persuasive body of evidence, as I say, that I've been able to collect regarding this phenomenon.
0: One of the things I know recently in the last couple of years uh, with the Trump White House and Trump administration is that I believe that there was some talk that, additional documentation would be declassified regarding UFO encounters with the, the government. And I uh, wanted to ask you about your opinion on that.
2: Well, that has actually happened. Uh, last, uh, it was December, uh, last December, December 2017, there was some really terrific disclosures from the United States Navy. There was a, a naval exercise that was taking place, I believe, about 15 years ago. And the U.S. Navy gave permission for the pilots involved in this incident to um, go public with it, describe it. Not only that, but the United States Navy actually supplied some of the gun camera footage of this mock combat that was flown between two um, U.S. Navy jets— and two uh, unidentified flying objects. When I say mock combat, that means there were some maneuvers, military maneuvers, made between them. Although no shots were exchanged, no one was, uh, no one was hurt or injured or, or killed in this encounter. That the encounter, this encounter was witnessed not just by these two U.S. Navy pilots, but was witnessed by literally dozens of Navy personnel aboard aircraft carriers radar operators as well as eyewitnesses to these objects that were flying at unbelievable speeds um, in which they would accelerate from point zero to two thousand seven hundred miles an hour within a microsecond. I mean no acceleration. One moment they're stationary and the next moment they're going twenty seven hundred miles per hour and they're, they're executing right hand turns that if any human being was aboard a craft like that, their body would be reduced to jelly or less. And um, these are the encounters that are now being disclosed. And I think that uh, it's very possible, um, perhaps inevitable, that more of these encounters are going to be made public. And that is a great uh, process of enlightenment that's going on right now. And that's something that we have to be thankful for. That's
0: amazing. In terms of your background, I mentioned during your introduction that you've written other books. One of them is your 2015 book, Death on Mars. And I wanted—I think it fits within the background of this. If you could tell us a little about that book and what were your findings about uh, potential atomic warfare over there. Uh, when I mean over there, I mean the red planet Mars. And I just wanted to ask about your opinion on that based upon Death on Mars.
2: Well, I... Unfortunately, uh, I did not write Death on Mars. That is written by Dr. Okay. John Brandenburg.
0: Oh, that's right. And, I thank that. Uh, right.
2: I apologize. Right, and he is one of the foremost uh, scientists of our time. He's a plasma physicist. He uh, is playing and already has played a major role in space travel, uh, manned and unmanned, and uh, he was able to, with his colleagues, he did not make this discovery on his own. As a matter of fact, he, he doesn't claim to have made this discovery, but he's the first one to publicize it. It's actually been known uh, among fellow physicists, American physicists, for at least the past 20 years, that the planet Mars, our planet Mars, our next nearest congenial uh, planetary planetary neighbor, that Mars was inhabited by a civilization, a rather low-level civilization, say on the Bronze Age level, many millions of years ago. Now, I know this is a very difficult thing for people to get their heads around, but nonetheless, this civilization did exist. Dr. Brandenburg's book explains it in terms that are far beyond anything I could summarize on an interview like this. And that this civilization suffered a nuclear catastrophe, some other civilization, in possession of uh, nuclear-style weapons, utterly destroyed that civilization, committed uh, an, uh, an extinction event, as it were. And the, the trace of it, evidence, the, the chemical trace evidence for this event, is beyond question. It's not a matter of hypothesis or discussing it. It's actually quite straightforward and simple. And he explains it in his book for laymen like myself and our listeners to understand. He did not come up with this discovery, as I said, that it was already known among physicists, but it is such a highly, highly controversial thing to bring up that no one had the courage to publicize it until he came along with his death on Mars. And the reason why I wanted to get in touch with Dr. Brandenburg is I had the good fortune, to, a good fortune to interview him for an Australian magazine called New Dawn some years ago. And I found him to be very articulate, a very brilliant creature. And um, so I asked him if he could, years later, if he could uh, be kind enough to write the foreword for my book. And he did so. The reason why I wanted him associated with my book was because uh, that's a military subject. That the death on Mars of a of a fairly advanced civilization by a more advanced civilization that it already has already happened within our solar system. An entire civilization on another world was wiped out through military action, nuclear action, and I think that uh, the same possibility is here. And the reason why I think it is here is because we are, as a species, we're bringing atomic weapons into space. The weaponization of space Began years ago, it's developed as our listeners know, thanks to the United States Space Force now, which Vice President Pence uh, announced some months ago. That could be regarded as a, a challenge, throwing down the gauntlet to a another species, a highly advanced species, who would not welcome the idea of human beings putting nuclear weapons into space because if we want to blow ourselves up or whatever we want to do down here that's one thing that would not concern them and if we are able to develop such weapons in the 21st century the early 21st century well within the next 100 or 200 years we would go far beyond our solar system and we would then be considered a very dire threat and that is something that we have to consider that's something that would, would merit our extinction it would merit our well, extinction. I mean, it's something that is a terrifying prospect, and not I not to mention. A, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. Yes.
0: I was going to say not to mention the fact that it would be against international law regarding space. We have the Outer Space Treaty, which says, in, in essence, that anyone who's a, a co-signer to it, it's 107 countries, including the U.S., the United Kingdom, the Soviet Union, and others, from 1967, that you will have, you, you, you're going to use space for peaceful use only. You're not going to put weapons of mass destruction in Earth orbit. Um, weapons
2: of mass destruction so have been in orbit for at least the past 10 years. And the way well, treaties you are... <laughs> I, I, I've yeah. written several books on, on military history, Earth history... And I can tell you, I know what treaties are. Treaties are nothing more than political window dressing. And if you get, you can get an international lawyer, and you can get around any treaty you want. Oh, we don't really have atomic weapons in space. This is just research research material. You can get around it, and those treaties are utterly worthless. And you know, we've all heard about, you know, the. The Munich Pact in 1938. All treaties are really that way. People seem to think, oh, if it's in black and white and it's turned down as a treaty, it's ironclad, it binds uh, these nations together. That doesn't. It doesn't at all. in History shows us that treaties are nothing more than political propaganda and that nations do whatever they want to do. Governments do whatever, whether it's the U.S. government or, or any other government. You've got your battery of the lawyers, and you have your agendas, and that's all that matters. The weaponization of space is old hat, and I've, I've got documentation mm-hmm. for that in the book, too. I don't want to get into that too much. It gets away from our subject. But what sure. my concern is, I mean, I'm not surprised. We as a species are an incredibly aggressive, exploitative, exterminating species. Why do you think there are no more mastodons in the world? Because our ancestors right. exterminated them. Why is it that there are no other people, like the, the original inhabitants of Easter Island, for example, who created a great civilization, the Moai, the Great Heads? Where are the, where are the original Easter Islanders? They're gone. We exterminated them. Where about? Most of the Native American Indians, what happened to them? Well, there are a few around now, but most of them got exterminated. That's, that is our, that's our history. That's, our, that's human nature. And the ETs would think, hey, that's fine. You know, if, if the ETs are in possession of vehicles that can bring them to, across galaxies, they have seen planets like ours. We're a dime a dozen. Nothing special, kind of minor in, of minor interest. It's like you going down to <laughs> Venezuela or Uruguay, maybe not even that extreme. And, oh, that's the way the people live down there. And that's fine. That's fine with us. If we don't want to blow each other up and exterminate each other and do all kinds of horrible things. That's our business. But when we bring our human nature attached to atomic weapons and interplanetary vehicles, that's what I'm. Mean, it's just like you having, for example, you go out in your yard, and uh, there's a hornet's nest in the woods. Well, you're not going to bother that. Well, that's where they are. They're in the woods. But if that hornet's nest gets set up in your living room, you're going to wipe them out. And I think that that is a risk that we are running. And that if the if I was if I was the u f if I was the extraterrestrials, I would seriously seriously consider. Uh, some kind of prophylactic action, because we, we cannot have uh, human beings with their acquisitive exterminating history writing atomic weapons throughout the solar system and beyond i mean that's you know that's that 's so many bad moving into the neighborhood that 's really bad stuff, and I believe if if you were to look at my book in in, uh, in objectively in toto. What is it that the the extraterrestrials are trying to tell us through their their destruction of our missile bases, which they've done, uh, through their deactivation of our Minuteman missiles, which they have done, uh, through the deactivation of Soviet missiles, all that, they're trying to tell us, don't bring this stuff into outer space. It's a simple message. If you want to keep it down here, fine. But if you bring it outside... Into our neighborhood, uh, we don't like that. You know, we're not going to we're not going to stand for that. And they don't have to create any kind of an, a war of the worlds or anything. All they have to do is introduce a pathogen from some other world uh, that we would know nothing about, and that would be it. That'd be the end of us. And I think that we are risking that. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't be in outer space? Well, I would reconsider that, quite honestly. I, you don't want to. You don't want to aggravate the aggravate the neighbors if they have a history, which apparently they do, of exterminating those planets where the the life uh, doesn't uh, doesn't uh, please them entirely. So these are things; these are hypotheses. I really didn't want to discuss these too much, but I think that there is a real chance. I think that there is more than a chance. I think that eventually uh, there is going to be an open clash of some kind. There already have been, but skirmishes. My book really documents skirmishes in this war of the worlds. It's been going on now for about 101, 102 years, 102 years, and that uh, it could escalate into something of the the absolute worst case scenario. And I mean, if I didn't believe this, uh, I certainly wouldn't be discussing it. I'm not going to be an evangelist for this sort of thing. I put the facts out there and let people decide. But it's it's, it's dangerous. I think we're playing with fire by creating a United States Space Force. You know, that's, that's – that's When kind I of... heard
0: that, it makes you want to scratch your head because I'm thinking we're going to have a Space Force when we don't even have – like I, I would just say globally we need to scale it down. You know, it, it, I understand the importance of the military, but we don't need to take that stuff into outer space.
2: And it's no. based on no. your
0: postulate. It's not necessary. It's not something we need to do. Uh, but you so know, I'm, there could be something that.
2: behind that. It could be that the, I mean, this is speculation again, but it could be that this United States Space Force is not meant to deal with anything on Earth. Maybe somebody in the administration, is try, or the military, is trying to send a message to our space brothers out there saying, we are going to defend ourselves uh, if you do anything here, and we have our own agendas, and if you don't like them, we're going to arm ourselves. So that's a possibility. Even though these extraterrestrials are in possession of a terrific uh, technological edge over ourselves, uh, they have lost uh, engagements from time to time. Uh, they have been destroyed, uh, and uh, it looks like it's almost nip and tuck. Uh, there have been instances, oh, going all the way back to the very beginning, back to 1917, where there they have. I wanted to ask have, you about that. They have suffered losses, and we have too. And uh, I don't know why they would suffer a loss because they do possess this terrific superiority that they have technological superiority. They can fly rings around our aircraft. Our aircraft, the most advanced military aircraft in the world, are are, uh, toys compared to what these uh, beings are able to manipulate.
0: Going to your book, and you talk about in your book, The the Chronology of Documented Confrontations between our Air Forces and extraterrestrial intruders. I wanted to ask you if you could share with our audience um, the earliest documented confrontations that you picked up on in your research that you discuss in your book.
2: The earliest uh, confrontations took place in early 1916, and that is a real watershed year. Because before 1916, I was unable to find any persuasive information or documentation which even indicated any kind of hostility on the part of these um, possessors of a high technology that are not of our world. That There, have, there were many uh, instances of sightings before 1916 all over the world going back thousands of years, but never, so far as I, I was able to tell, any deaths or injuries or destruction of any kind taking place until 1916. In early 1916, the DuPont chemical factories, mostly located east of the Mississippi, although they had some major factories in the Dakotas, they became what was known then as the arsenal of democracy. In other words, they were the great... Chemical producers of uh, bombs, ex- high explosives, shells. That England, for example, couldn't produce enough of them. Or France, especially by 1916. Matter of fact, this is what made DuPont uh, the great, uh, terrific economic power that it was. In 19, 19- by 1916, the uh, French. And the English were losing World War One. They just could not keep pace. They expected the Germans to have collapsed in 1914. They were far from that, and they had expended almost all of their uh, armaments. And so they came to the United States, and we they gave us uh, we extended them huge loans, and these loans made it possible for DuPont to now become the uh, suppliers. Of arms, especially high explosives for the British and the French. And it was in 1916 that these plants that they had, in New Jersey especially, began to explode, blow up. No one was killed in these explosions. A few people were injured, but nobody was, nobody was killed. But the amount of damage was, was thorough. And when these these, these incidents, as they were referred to, were not just accidents. DuPont had a terrific record for safety. They were absolute fanatics when it came to precautions against any kind of accidents. That, as a matter of fact, the DuPonts manufacturing companies had had virtually no accidents. They had really no serious accidents until 1916. They had a few minor fires. That's all. So when the investigative committees, and these were investigative committees launched by the United States government, were launched to to try to find out how these factories were blowing up, one after the other were exploding. We're talking about something like 20 or so, and I've got them documented in the book, about 20 explosions that decimated these DuPont factories all in 1916 throughout the first three quarters of 1916 and when they were investigated they expected to find the cause of accidents And so not one of them could they trace an accidental cause for it, not one as a matter of fact the uh, U.S. government investigative um, committees commended DuPont on their uh, terrific safety record and their their great concerns that not one could find an accident so it was assumed it was assumed that it was German agents who were sneaking around blowing up these DuPont factories. Well, there were two, f- that was put out publicly. There were two reasons against that. Number one, there were no German agents sneaking around in 1916. We did not, the United States did not go to war with Imperial Germany until April 1917, long after this. Not only that, but Kaiser Wilhelm was totally against anything that would involve the United States in World War 1 they wanted to, he and the Germans wanted to keep America out of the war they did not want to have another enemy to fight especially one as powerful as the United States so there was never any intention to do any harm to any US property on Germany's part when the when the US government investigated these Uh, incidents of these DuPont factories blowing up, they announced after the war, which didn't last much longer, but in 1919, right after the war, that there were no German agents responsible for blowing up any of these factories. There were no accidental cause found for them at all. However, there was a very peculiar phenomenon associated with the destruction of these DuPont chemical factories, these munitions factories. And that was that in numerous occasions, not every occasion, but most of, the, of these incidents were the observation by credible witnesses, sometimes military witnesses, often by security personnel, of what they described as flying hats or strange aircraft that made no noise just before an explosion or just immediately after an explosion. I must say there was never a single incident where they showed these where they these strange craft were seen actually causing the uh, explosions. But they these strange craft were seen immediately afterwards and immediately prior to these destructions. And the the description of these uh, unknown craft. We have to consider it was 1916. They didn't. No one knew how to describe them. Were very similar to uh, classic descriptions of UFOs. For example, one description said that this one craft uh, resembled a, a Mexican hat. Described it as a kind of a Mexican hat, but it was shiny and appeared to be metallic. And this is the beginning of the attempt by another civilization from another world to, to at least damper down or send the message to us that you're not to deploy these weapons uh, in the air. And that is the thing that marks World War I, isn't it? World War I technologically marks two major events. Number one, the invention and deployment of heavier-than-air craft. had never happened before. And number two, the development of HE, high explosives. And you wedded the two together and you had these great bombers. In Germany, the the, the Gotha bombers, and uh, the British they had the Hanley Page bombers. So in other words, you had these heavy aircraft bringing high explosives into the air. And it takes not much to see that over time, over the next 100 to 200 years, given the nature of civilization and uh, technological progress, that's not much of a leap to go from a Gotha or a Henley Page bomber in 1917 and 16 to the kind of intercontinental ballistic bombers we have today, and then another hundred years, the interstellar, the intersolar bombers that we'll have, or actually do already have, thanks to our United States Space Force and the weaponization of space that is going on now and accelerating pace. So this would be a very disturbing observation to be made, wouldn't it, from another civilization that's looking down on us and saying, it's not only a matter of time before these self-destructive humans with their bloodlust are going to be visiting our neighborhood, and what are we going to do about that? So that's, in essence, that is really what the book is all about.
0: Well, I can see that too, where we become a threat to them. That would make us then something that ETs would have to look at critically and evaluate where would we fall on the spectrum of a threat to their neighborhood, as you call it. I, I, I can see that as a potential motivation for their, for ETs coming in and blowing up, for example, the DuPont factories in 1916. I want to ask you as a, as a shifting focus a little about your book, if you could tell our audience about Operation High Jump.
2: Operation High Jump, uh, at, you know, you asked me at the beginning of the program what got me started in writing the book. I guess it was was three things. Uh, first of all, about 25 years ago, coming across that Thule Papyrus in Egypt, and then my wife uh, suggesting I write it up. And another thing was when I found out about Operation High Jump, I had heard something about it, something vague. It was supposed to be about how the United States uh, Navy, after World War II, sailed down to Antarctica and got into... A uh, some kind of a, a military situation, a battle situation, with these flying saucers, which were really uh, post World War II German uh, uh, technology. I thought, oh, what a what a crock! You know, what a, what nonsense fantasy! You know, didn't exist. And then someone once mentioned to me, so, you know, there really was an operation, a high jump, and something like that." I said, "Oh, I don't believe that," until I looked it up. I just went on Wikipedia. Anybody can do this. And lo and behold, there really was an Operation High Jump. And the Wikipedia article isn't bad. It's, it's straightforward. It's all like that. But the great thing about that Wikipedia article, which you'd still get on, is that it has all these references to Operation High Jump. And some of these references are mind-blowing. One of the references they have is El Mercurio. El Mercurio was, and still is, one of the largest newspapers on Earth. Not well known here, but it's uh, published in Chile. And El Mercurio, this huge uh, newspaper, is read all over the Spanish-speaking world still, and was a major newspaper back in 1947 when this Operation High Jump concluded uh, prematurely. And El Mercurio ran a very peculiar interview with Admiral Richard E. Byrd. Yes, Admiral Byrd, the the famous Arctic explorer of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And Admiral Byrd was put in charge of Operation High Jump. And I should tell you, to put that in perspective, what was Operation High Jump? Well... Think of 1946. What was the world like in 1946? The world in 1946 was exhausted. We had gone through the most ruinous war in all history. It had reduced the nations of the world, with the exception of the United States, to ruins. Europe was in ruins. The Soviet Union was no threat in those days. They had lost 40 million men. Imagine such a thing. The Empire of Japan was done. There was no threat anywhere. The United States was by default supreme. And yet, in 1946, when the world was absolutely at peace, there were no enemies because everybody was either dead or defeated and exhausted. But in 1946, the United States Navy launched a major military operation, nothing less than an invasion. This actually took place called Operation High Jump. It involved a full-fledged aircraft carrier with hundreds of pilots and and aviation personnel, the most uh, advanced communication vessel, a huge communication vessel, destroyers, submarines, uh, brand-new helicopters that were invented just then, the dragonfly helicopter, flying boats armed to the teeth—it was a major military invasion of Antarctica. Well, wow, how ridiculous! Nobody lives in Antarctica, <laughs> right? And yet it happened—a major military invasion in 1946, when the rest of the world was at peace, under the guise of a scientific research project, <laughs> which nobody believed. And Admiral Byrd, he was interviewed by the New York Times before uh, Operation High Jump sent out. And one of the reporters from the New York Times asked him, well, Admiral Byrd, what is the purpose of uh, Operation High Jump? And he was, of course, supposed to say it was a scientific expedition. and He said, he came out right away, he said, this is a military operation. (laughs) And the reporters were shocked. A military operation in Antarctica? There's nobody down there but penguins, Right. And then he was later told, "Oh you've gone too far, don't say things like that <laughs> <laughs> and so he he was then he was interviewed when it was all over with they left in december nineteen forty six and they were the the word was out they were supposed to be down there for eight months, eight to nine months that's the time that was scheduled, and they better it was extremely expensive. It cost many millions of dollars, in today's money, many billions of dollars, which the United States government could ill afford in those days. You know, the rest of our military was being dismantled. We had no use for it. And yet this thing was launched at the same time. So he goes down to Chile after Operation High Jump is terminated after only a few months, <laughs> about three months. They were there about three, a little over three months, I think. They're supposed to be down to eight to nine. What happened? So Operation High Jump limps back into Valparaiso Harbor in <laughs> Chile. And some of the men being taken off the ship, quite a few of the men, are wounded. They're on stretchers. And so he gets interviewed. Admiral Byrd gets interviewed by El Mercurio, this major newspaper, and they're saying, what, what happened? We thought you were supposed to be down there for a long time, for eight to nine months, and here you're back about three months later. And you're bringing all these wounded to our hospitals. What's going on? And Admiral Byrd says that the world has never been in such danger as it is now. <laughs> and he says, we have to worry about, we have to worry about flying vehicles that can go from pole to pole in a matter of moments. This is all printed in black and white. And he talks about, uh, he says, I don't want to alarm anyone, but we have to be prepared for uh, the worst type of uh, confrontation. We can't even imagine what it's like. And so he, he the, the rest of his conversation, I, I quote at length from his interview on, <laughs> in uh, El Mercurio, and he talks about this uh, being a very dangerous time and that we don't have the kind of facilities necessary and so on. So then he finally gets, of course, Admiral Byrd was supposed to be more tight-lipped on these things. And so when he got back to, he brought his, the remnants of his, his uh, Operation High Jump uh, back to the United States. He was summoned immediately to the White House, was told not to give any more interviews, and that was the end of his career. <laughs> they just terminated him right there.
1: He became wow. a
2: very, he became a very close friend of the of our Secretary of War, which was Admiral Forrestal, and those two guys got together. And Admiral Forrestal got an earful from Admiral Byrd. What really happened down there, and what really happened down there was this: we had gone down there. This I try to make this as as. Just uh, uh, summarize as best I can. We had gone sure. down there okay. to invade Antarctica because there's a UFO base down there, and we and this UFO base had done no no harm to anybody, had not bothered anyone at all. It was not run by Germans. The Germans never went to Antarctica. Let me tell you that I, I researched that really thoroughly. I thought, Wouldn't that be cool? The Germans, the German Luftwaffe or something, had this base and at the South Pole. It never happened. The Germans couldn't. It, were overstretched in World War II as it was. The Germans did get to the uh, to the Arctic. They did have an important base there in the in the north, uh, but they never got anywhere near the Arctic. They had no supply for anything like that. They had their hands full in the North Atlantic. Never got down there. But what they did do, what the Germans did do in 1939, they sent a research vessel, not a military invasion. They sent a research vessel down to. Uh, uh, to uh, Antarctica in order to uh, it was mostly for a propaganda thing. Uh, the Third Reich is expanding scientifically, blah, 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 that sort of thing. And the, they put uh, some pretty uh, uh, important scientists on board their, their cruiser down there. They went down there. It was not military, but they found something down there, and they photographed something down there. And what they photographed uh, shocked them And they did not know how to be able to handle anything like this. Who would have in 1939? What they did find was uh, evidence for extraterrestrial life, uh, having a a small base down there in which there were several of these, I don't know how to describe as flying saucers, as vehicles. Well, a very close friend of the German Polar Society was none other than Richard E. (laughs) Byrd. The same guy, Admiral Byrd, in 1939, this is when the United States and, and Nazi Germany were uh, you know, not too far away from having war with each other. Two years later, there'd be a war with each other. But Admiral Byrd, he, he was, like I said, he was a, his own man, you know. He was a, a strange guy. And uh, he went to Ge- Nazi Germany in <laughs> 1939. And he became great friends with uh, this fellow by the name of Richter. And Richter was the head of the German Polar Society. They were about to go down and investigate uh, what they're going to find there in in 1939. And they invited Admiral Byrd to come along. And he said, no, I can't go. I'd love to go, but I can't because my government uh, won't allow that. So he went back to the United States. And after World War II, Admiral Richter, the same guy, his friend, (laughs) went to Admiral Byrd and said, you know, you should have come with us back in 1939 because we found this UFO base down there. What? So Admiral Byrd goes Crazy. My God, there's this UFO based down there. They've got the superior technology. If it scared the Germans, it's going to definitely scare us. (laughs) So Admiral Byrd was a very influential figure, and he was the guy that really got Operation High Jump going. He went from, oh, from the president to the head of the, well, Admiral Forrestal. He knew the head of the Navy, Secretary of the Navy and all these people, and said, we have to go down there. We have to take these guys out. That's the American way, you know. We don't we don't tolerate anybody that has anything bigger or stronger than us, you know. So Admiral Byrd said, yeah, we have to go down to Antarctica, and we're going to have to launch a military operation, and we're going to call Operation High Jump, even the name High Jump. What does that mean? Why, why do they choose a name like that? High Jump, because you're dealing with some craft that can jump far higher than anything we have. So we have to go down there and take these fellows out, these little... Ball-headed guys down there—we have to take, or at least learn their technology. So we get the Operation High Jump going, and we invade Antarctica. And it doesn't turn out quite that way. Uh, We shoot down one of their, uh, one of their craft. One of their craft gets shot down by a submarine. How crazy is things like that? A submarine was just on the surface, had a lucky shot, and took out one of their craft. Well, they took out more than one of ours. Let me tell you, they knocked down several of our. Uh, float planes as they were called, these were huge mariner twin engine bombers, they got knocked out um, a, a destroyer called the USS Maddox got sunk yeah, we got hurt, we uh, we uh, left with our tail between our legs after three months, uh, because we did not take out the UFO base, they took us out, enough of us there's no doubt that they could have completely wiped out Operation High Jump, but they didn't they took out that destroyer, the USS Maddox. They knocked down a couple of float planes, killed some people. Yeah, some guys died, no doubt about it, but not many. And um, some got injured, and that's that's the story of Operation I-Jump. I go into a lot greater detail in the book. And uh, the Soviets knew more about it than the American public, let me tell you. The Soviets were monitoring it. They knew all about it. They got some of the, some of the ships' names uh, screwed up because their mastery of the English language wasn't as good as it should have been, but um, it's all come out. <laughs> it's all there, and it's all pieced together. It's, sure. it, was a, it was a defeat. We got we got beat. There's no doubt about it, and that's what shook up Admiral Byrd, and that's why he said those things that he did. That's why he told that to El Mercurio in 1947.
0: Pretty amazing stuff, I think, in my opinion. I want to ask you, going into World War II, uh, Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, was one of the major military figures in the Pacific arena. And I wanted to ask you, what, if anything, did MacArthur say about the possibility of war between humans and extraterrestrials?
2: He thought it was inevitable. He thought he thought that the next uh, major war would be between us and them. And the reason why he thought that is because, as I said at the beginning of our interview, as early as March 1941, the U.S. government had, and still has in its possession, a crashed uh, non-terrestrial vehicle as FDR referred to it and everybody, all high-ranking people, I mean the top you know, the commanders they all knew about this uh, object that had been uh, obtained uh, for example when Churchill uh, on his own, Churchill had not been informed about these things Churchill on his own uh, found out in uh, 1942 that uh, Too many of his men, his RAF pilots and crews, had experienced these really close encounters. And this one was particularly impressive. Churchill, until that time, had chalked up these accounts as pretty much the results of fatigue on the part of his men or misidentification of other phenomena. But there was this one incident aboard a Wellington bomber, which is a twin-engine medium bomber, in which the crews took photographs, which have never been released, uh, but the, the and the crews made a very uh, uh, lucid and consistent report of what happened. Uh, what happened was is that this UFO approached the approached the Wellington bomber. The closer that this object came, the more electromagnetic problems were experienced on board the Wellington bomber. The Wellington bomber then uh, its commander uh, ordered. Um, his gunners to open fire on the ufo which was quite close and they fired at it with really powerful weapons these were uh, 50 millimeter uh, 50 millimeter machine guns 50 caliber machine guns in sets of four in the uh in the uh uh, nose and uh, stern turrets and they fired point blank at this thing had no effect on it whatsoever nothing and so when they filed their report uh, Churchill was really impressed that this was real, and especially when he saw the photographs. This has all been released by uh, the British newspapers about two years ago. So the, my sources for that are, are really pretty good. It was all over the British press. And uh, it was as a matter of fact, one of the papers was The Telegraph, which is a, uh, a pretty staid uh, British newspaper. It's not a sensationalist newspaper, not a tabloid by any means. And so when Churchill came to the United States, he met with FDR, and he said, you know, we've got these things here, you know, that we're we're seeing in the skies over Europe. And F, FDR was very cagey on that. He didn't even he, – he said, well, really? That's interesting, although he had his own thing. But he wouldn't acknowledge uh, anything uh, new about that. But then when Churchill went to Eisenhower, uh, and Eisenhower and Churchill then were working together on Operation Overlord, the invasion of uh, Normandy and that eventually took place in uh, June 1944 – Churchill said, "God, we've got the we had this really close encounter with this uh, this craft that was far beyond anything we have, and it wasn't German. We know that for certain." Eisenhower laughed. He said, "Yeah, we know all about it. We've got ours. We had three or four of ours back for the last three years or so, so so we know all about it. So it's uh, the UFO uh, phenomena really uh, stepped up, I think, especially during World War II." Uh, that 's when there were the, the uh, some early fatalities involved human fatalities during World War One. there were a few close encounters uh, there was some shooting going on, uh, but no humans were killed during World War one by I t s i don't i don 't know of any i don 't think there were any at all but in World War two yes there there were some died. One of the earliest ones was a b seventeen that was set on fire uh, by this this object uh, just burned it. And uh, nobody survived that. All the crew burned up, a lot, were burned in that one.
1: Hmm. And there was
2: a, uh, there was another confrontation, just to show that the uh, the ETS were uh, not on either side particularly. Uh, they got into a, a dogfight with uh, some Japanese aircraft, and they destroyed one of the Japanese aircraft, killed the man on board that one. There were some uh, zeros over uh, defending uh, airport over Ho- Ho- Hokkaido, which is the northern part of Japan and uh, they, they saw these objects, and the Japanese didn't wait for anything. They opened fire on these two objects, and they apparently did some damage to this one UFO, and then the other UFO stepped in and knocked down the Zero. So there've been, mm-hmm. there have been some... Uh, World War II was the beginning, I think, of some serious, uh, really serious uh, deaths involved, you know, and they accelerated from that time until now.
1: Can you tell us a little
0: about the fighters and what role they had during World War II?
2: Well, Foo Fighters, that is a a term that comes from uh, the French uh, uh, Foo, or or the way it was pronounced anyway by Americans, which which just means like uh, a fiery object. Foo Fighter is a a term that was used by American air crews. Uh, And what would happen is that they'd be over, just in operation uh, over enemy territory, and they'd be approached by these objects, which uh, were described pretty much the same as, uh, as we see them today, or as they're described today, sometimes just as luminous spheres, other times as like flying metal hats and so forth with domes on the top. Um, and mostly the Foo Fighters uh, kept their distance, and there wasn't uh, wasn't any uh, difficulty, but there were other incidents in which uh, there there were difficulties. Um, as I mentioned before, the closer that these objects would approach uh, an aircraft, the more uh, electromagnetic problems the uh, aircraft would experience. And uh, sometimes uh, there, there were aggressive moves on the part of both sides. Um, and other times, uh, but for the most part, the Foo Fighters were benign. There does not appear to have been any kind of um,
1: uh,
2: confronta- military confrontations. Um, but I, I do list as many in there as I've been able to uh, able to uh, track down and to document. It's especially important that I get these things documented. I don't want to have just uh, hearsay. I'd like to be, have actually have put my hands on a military report, and those are the ones that I I put in there. There was a, a very frightening uh, incident right at the end of World War II. Japan had just surrendered, and uh, part of the negotiating, the American negotiating team was on a flight from one island to another, a Japanese island. The Japanese had just surrendered, I think, about 24 hours before. And uh, this very peculiar object, which is described as teardrop-shaped and fiery, approached the aircraft. The aircraft completely went out of control. And um, there was actually panic on board the the plane because they were looking for some place to... To crash because there was only ocean, there was nothing else so they were just going to make a, an ocean la- ocean crash landing, and the teardrop shape accompanied them as the plane is free falling for several long seconds, and then the teardrop shape just vanished into space instantly, and then the aircraft regained its control again so that was uh, that was another incident of that kind that was more that was really kind of more typical,
0: although a little bit extreme for World War two. Can you tell me, and let me ask you this: Roswell, the, the crash in Roswell, New Mexico, in 1947, very well known in terms of 20th century discovery of extraterrestrial crash uh, technology. I want to ask you: Is it Europe? what do you what do you think about that crash? Do you think it was something that was accidental, or do you feel it might be more deliberate based on the confrontation that you're describing between our military? extraterrestrials.
2: The Roswell incident took place literally within months, a few months, after Operation High Jump um, concluded so disastrously. And the reason why um, Roswell took place, it wasn't just one vehicle that um, was involved in the crash, it was two. And uh, both of them were shot down. They were both involved in the only way that they could shoot them down in those days Um, And maybe even now, because they were very fast and very elusive. And it was thanks to this gentleman that I mentioned earlier, which is Admiral Forrestal. Admiral Forrestal was a great believer in the UFOs and a proponent of their uh, being acknowledged publicly. And um, he was intent on getting revenge for Operation High Jump. And I, I go on this in greater detail in the book, as I say, we do not have enough time to explain it all, but he set a trap for them in New Mexico. And the trap was with uh, high-frequency radar. He knew that if he could lure them into this trap, if they could be, if they would just be in this uh, low-altitude area, even for a few seconds, he would be able to turn the inside of their flying saucers into microwave ovens. And that's precisely what he did. He caught them in kind of a cross fire across a beam with this radar, and he fried the inhabitants. We know that because of the description of the uh, the bodies from the coroner. The coroner, you know, uh, most people aren't aware of this, but the coroner who saw the bodies of these aliens and uh, performed autopsies on them. That's, we're not talking about the autopsy of the film that was released, which is probably a fraudulent uh, thing. But the actual, the actual coroner who worked on them described them as um, all-suffering, catastrophic burns. Um, This was not the only time that this was done. It was done a few times. It's a good way to knock down uh, these UFOs, except that you have to get them to behave exactly the way you want. That's not always the case. Uh, Admiral Forrestal, I think, was uh, quite skilled in, in getting these two into position. Uh, The reason he was able to do that is he knew that the ETs were very interested in our nuclear capabilities, so he made uh, quite a show of having these bogus uh, nuclear missiles, which we did not have in those days. uh, These bogus nuclear missiles, and eventually, of course, they did show up just as he expected, and uh, he was able to uh, hit them with this low, uh, excuse me, high uh, high frequency uh, radar. And that's what uh, what fried them inside. That's exactly what happened. We've done that actually a couple times before, but it's, it's difficult to do.
0: That's very interesting. That's Roswell. You don't get to hear too frequently. And I, I no, having... I really
2: looked into that too. But uh, I think that, uh, that it was not an accident at all. There was another uh, case in Aztec, New Mexico, not far from there, in which uh, uh, we had a similar situation going on. So it. Uh, it happens. It's
0: happened. Based on your research, how many other crash sites involving extraterrestrial spacecraft do you believe existed beyond Aztec and beyond Roswell in the last 70 years?
2: I must tell you, quite honestly, I have no idea, because the the government and the military well, government government uh, records. Uh, only goes so far and there's no doubt that there are many that are still highly classified not discussed i only built my book on those documents that i was able to actually lay my hands on and there i know there are many more out there Uh, i can't even hazard a guess on how many crashes there have been either natural or else actually brought down I, i honestly do not know
0: it's just an interesting idea to think about because if this stuff's all top secret or double top, or, you know, confidential, we're not probably going to learn about it or have it released till years in the future. It makes you think, just no, no,
2: and there is some the disclosure topic. going on, as I say now, and how far that disclosure will get, I don't know, but it's it's very it's it's really I would say impossible at this point for someone who's not uh, doesn't have privy to all this information. Uh, t- to find out. I, I, like I say, I wish I knew, but I just don't know.
0: You talk about the uh, Vietnam War. And I want to ask you, what did you find regarding extraterrestrial involvement during the Vietnam War? A huge amount. A
2: huge amount. Uh, what's interesting is that there seems to be an acceleration of interactive Combat skirmishes between humans and non humans beginning in World War I, where there were just a few, then they increased during World War Two. During the Korean War, they jumped far, the Korean War era, they they jumped far, they're far more numerous than they were in World War Two, And then in Vietnam, it's far more numerous. So it's like like there's an acceleration of activity going on over the decades. In Vietnam, there's some very, very disturbing uh, incidents that went far beyond anything that was known during previous wars, especially uh, during World War I, where no one was, was hurt. And what I'm referring to are instances of mutilation. Um, there is something known as the grudge report. And the grudge report, which is difficult to get a hold of, But you can get it, especially, hopefully, through the sources that I list there. The grudge report was something that was put together uh, on a special forces team during the Vietnam War. We're talking about about 1969, 1970. And the grudge report refers to this special forces team that was assigned to go into Laos, which was completely illegal... Uh, we were to go into Laos because there was a downed B 52 that had been involved in strikes against Hanoi and had gone down in the jungles of Laos. And so, this, and it's all just described in great detail by the, in this grudge report. And not only by the grudge report, but by one of the men that was involved in it. He had a, a radio interview over Canadian radio, and I got the transcripts of that uh, interview that he gave. And uh, he and the Grudge reports uh, both confirm that the Special Forces team, the United States Special Forces team, uh, located the B-52. It was uh, B-52, by the way, for our listeners not familiar with it, it was and still is a, a huge uh, jet bomber called the Straddle Fortress, and uh, was the, the chief um, weapon of offense during the Vietnam War. And had a crew. The crew would vary in number from about eight to about a dozen or so men. Well, the Special Forces team went to Laos, located the B-52, and were very surprised when they found it because the aircraft was in virtually perfect condition. There was nothing wrong with it, and yet it's in the middle of the jungle. There were, there were no signs that it had landed in the jungle. It, it looked as though it had been, in the words of the Gorge Report, as though it had been placed into the jungle you cannot land a, a jet bomber uh, with a, a stall speed of about 200 miles an hour in a, in a jungle it'll be torn to shreds but there was no indication that it had landed it just had been placed there the under the undercarriage of the aircraft was somewhat damaged um, but the rest of the aircraft was in fine condition well, when the Special Forces team got into the aircraft, they found that the, the bomb load was still on board, that the the payload was still there, that the aircraft had not uh, fulfilled its mission, apparently, and that all of the crew were still uh, strapped into their position in, in seats, in their, their seats, and they had all been uh, badly mutilated, badly mutilated. And... Um, The Grudge Report goes on to say that there were other incidents of mutilation involving peculiar, inexplicable circumstances. There is a a gentleman that I write about who was highly decorated for running running one of these river boats, river patrol boats, like you see in the movie Apocalypse Now. He ran a a patrol boat and... uh, he saw things there too, and he also refers to uh, a few, not many. Uh, I think he talks about two or three uh, U.S. personnel that were found in the bush that had been badly mutilated. And they were, at first, it was thought that they were mutilated by the, the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese, but because of the location where the bodies were found, they found that they knew that that was impossible. That the Viet Cong had never been there, uh, had no access to that area. And at the same time, um, these bodies were found. Uh, there were, had been reports, military reports, of uh, extraterrestrial craft in the area. So it got to be very messy and, and very unpleasant during the Vietnam War. And there were other incidents of, uh, of mutilation, but that one with the B-52 was the, absolutely the worst uh, that i come across. It wasn't the first time, uh, but it was among the worst, because I think there were at that time there were about maybe Uh, eight or nine men on board, and they were all had been mutilated and uh, still strapped in the position. So what had happened? Was the aircraft abducted in midair, and these poor men uh, subjected to this treatment and then placed back into the jungle? There were other incidents like that. That's not unique. Rare, infrequent, but not unique. So there you are. That's
1: so
0: interesting, and we probably won't know anytime soon regarding the uh, actual specifics of what occurred based on what you're describing.
2: No, the, Gr- the grudge report uh, just mentions, well, the grudge report is a strictly military report uh, where the, uh, the leader of the uh, expedition, the special forces, just tells exactly what he saw, what was there, and um, they could not explain how this aircraft had gotten there, having no explanation how it could have happened. But other than that, he just tells what he saw as a good soldier. That's, he, he gave his report. This is it, like it or not. You know,
0: There
1: it
0: is. So. I was going to say, it's like how you said earlier that military reports are the most reliable because if there's any inconsistencies that were perpetrated in those reports, they could wind up being court-martialed. You bet. And so the authenticity of the findings of these kind of reports is the treasure trove of documentation that – was a, that you were able to utilize in formulating your book and i think it's very interesting with the angle that you took utilizing
2: you know and the interesting thing to too is uh, that uh, across a number i would say uh, just given human nature what it is that most military personnel when they would run into things like this or they'd see these things, would make no reports because you were given a choice. Let's say, for example, you, you came across uh, you saw a UFO and it was doing something, or you just happened to see it or was engaged in some kind of action with other military personnel. You had, you had two things you could do. You could either give a report, a full report of exactly what you saw, or you could, you could claim, I didn't see a thing. And, you know, that's a typical thing in in, uh, police work, you know, where police see things that they're not supposed to see, uh, especially like other officers doing something they're not supposed to. They'll just say, I didn't see anything. And it's the same thing in the military. Uh, I didn't see anything. Now, if you do give a military report, and yes, I saw this UFO and, and I saw it engaged with other military personnel, you run the risk of getting a Section 8. A Section 8 means you're going to go before a psychiatrist, or you could... That's going to go on your record. And let's say you want to make a, a, a career of the military. Well, your career might be affected by that. You know, they want only the most reliable people for officer material. And they're looking at some guy, you know, so, oh, this guy claims to have seen a, a little green man, you know, of flying a su- with a flying saucer. You know, that's you know, we're not going to give this guy advancement. So that's an inhibitant. And it's not going to encourage people to make a report by that. But some Some of these guys, they just don't give a damn. They don't care, or they feel obligated to tell the truth. Yeah, I really saw this. But mostly if it's with a lot of men, If if it's just one guy or a couple of guys that see it, they usually clam up. They don't talk. But if it's like a dozen or more men, like in Operation Grudge, you had an entire special forces team. You know, you had about two dozen men going in there, armed guys, professional soldiers. Damn straight! They're going to tell exactly what happened. They don't care what anybody believes or they don't believe it. They're filing a report. So
0: and that's how they were trained yeah, as
2: well. They're, they're trained, trained. They're trained, trained to training. do that
0: exactly. exactly. And the other exactly. side of the
2: coin is this: that a lot of those guys that did see things but did made no reports, they kept it to themselves until their military career was over, and when it's over, then they gave their reports. There's a lot of terrific YouTubes out of these men, these ex-service personnel, giving extremely credible interviews on what they witnessed and what they saw. And I include some of them. I don't include all of them because if there's somebody that I'm not entirely sure, if that doesn't sound just right, I, I might get spooked by it. But it's a number of these men, are. they list their name, they talk all about their military history. They have nothing to hide. And they say, well, I couldn't talk about this at the time, but I'm talking about it now. And great stuff. It's great stuff. So that's what the book is composed of. The book is composed of these military reports made at the time and also of these veterans, these great guys that are talking about what happened. And, and the picture that emerges is, is disturbing it's a disturbing picture. When I wrote the book, I found it, I found it very unnerving to write about. I'm glad the book is over. I didn't want to write it anymore. It got to be uh, frightening. Actually, it's frightening. It is frightening. And I
0: think we have good well, the fact reason. It's frightening, frightening. frightening, and it it's something that's been covered up for the most part. Even though there's public records that you can look at, it's not like it's our headlines in our in our media. No, uh, on a daily basis. I wouldn't say it's so covered uh, up. It's
2: just it's just uh, selectively neglected, which is a form of cover up. Uh, the Soviets, of course, were great uh, uh, at covering stuff up like that. So, but when the Soviet Union fell, thank God for all other reasons as well. When the Soviet Union fell, a huge amount of this information came out, and there was a there was and is a terrific researcher. I can't. Uh, Thank him enough. His name is Paul Stonehill. That's not his real name, his real name he's Russian. He was born in Russia, uh, raised in Russia and he moved to the United States, I believe the United States or, or uh, uh England, became a, a US citizen or a British citizen, and then after the Soviet Union fell, went back to Russia and he was able to translate so many of these documents that were disclosed by the N K V D. And the Soviet Air Force and all these other things that were totally suppressed from you know from 1917 all the way up until 1991. And boy, they got fantastic stuff. His books are terrific, and I I quote from him in a lot of cases. Terrific stuff, similar to what we went through, and some pretty hair-raising stuff too. Man, they lost a lot of guys. <laughs> they lost a lot of guys the so the, the Soviet Union uh, it's interesting Paul Stonehill brings up that um, they didn't pussyfoot around on this after that they after they had some really hairy encounters the the Soviet military announced to all of its uh, personnel if you were in there that these craft really exist that they are not human. That we don't know where they're from, and you are not under any circumstances even to point your weapon at these things. That if you see these things, you're to uh, uh, report them, give an honest report, but you are not to be involved in any kind of uh, firefight with them. And that's kind—I mean, they acknowledged that to all of the Soviet personnel. That's something that more than I think any other country did. Nonetheless, there were incidents where, even though the Soviets had mandated the law that you are not to have any aggressive um, posture towards these UFOs, many times, or at least sometimes, uh, Soviet soldiers would panic, and they'd fire on them, and that didn't always work out too well. As a matter of fact, it worked out uh, very, very badly, many times, so... This whole thing about, you know, the UFO people, they're space brothers and they're here to save us and all that from ourselves, that's not reality. The reality is something uh, far, more, um, far more concerning That's
0: disconcerting. I understand that for sure. I'll, I know we're running low on time, and I, want, I went a little over because I think your topic is just so incredibly interesting to me. I want to ask you one last question. 1969, we land on the moon. And I know your book discusses that, and I wanted to ask you about whether or not any alien bases were discovered on the moon right before that first man lunar landing.
2: Uh, There's a superb interview, which I recommend to our listeners to look up on YouTube. It's with a uh, former United States Air Force a sergeant who was a a high-ranking technician. His name is Carl Wolf. And he gives an interview in which um, in 19, I believe it was 1964. I'm not sure. Of course, landing on the moon took place five years later. But around 1964, he was involved in a a photogrammic uh, survey of the lunar surface in preparation for that landing and other things. And he was shown photographs that had already been taken. Uh, he, would have been, he had been called in to service a particular uh, type of uh, camera reproduction that was uh, malfunctioning, and he was uh, an expert in this particular instrument. And in the process of uh, repairing this instrument for the U.S. Air Force, he uh, was with another technician who normally ran the camera, and they they both saw photographs of these large buildings, very bizarre buildings, unquestionably buildings on the moon, on the lunar surface. One of the buildings he described as being very, much like a, an incredibly tall tower. And the photographs were crystal clear. And uh, Sergeant Wolf, uh, retired Sergeant Wolf, uh, gives a very credible explanation of this Extraterrestrial base that was on the moon in the mid 1960s before we ever got anywhere near close to it.
0: That's amazing.
2: It really is. It is. is. It's really amazing. But what, you know, so then you think, well, you're given this information. What are you supposed to do with it? You think, like, oh, that's nonsense. This man's lying. Or is he doing this for money? Well, it's obvious in the interview that none of those factors are involved. The reason why he he, uh, speaks. And as many of these veterans do is because they can't keep it to themselves anymore. It drives them crazy, and they have to they have to get it off their chest before they pass away. They just have to. And um, he was uh, obligated to say nothing about it for 20 years, I believe, after he left the uh, armed forces. But he's not obligated anymore, and he has told the truth. And it's yeah,
1: that's
2: interesting stuff.
0: I want I want to tell you that this is an amazing topic. And I think your book is a great opportunity for anyone in our audience that's really interested in this area to delve deeper in it. I know our interview can only go so far because of our time constraints. From my vantage point, I think this is an incredible work that you've done to encapsulate the topic itself chronologically for over a hundred years. I really find it intriguing and I also think it can challenge our paradigm of what we would conceive to be UFOs, extraterrestrials, and how they interplay with us uh, on, on, the, on our planet. Uh, it is alarming to think that there's these confrontations. I think, from my vantage point, I invite our audience to check your book out directly, and I know that they can go to Amazon itself to purchase your book is that correct
2: yeah uh, the book is called military encounters with extraterrestrials and uh, the best way i think for listeners to get a copy is just go to amazon.com they certainly get the better price there and um it's uh it's definitely disturbing it's it it might it might keep you awake at night Uh, some of the stuff is it's not all as pleasant as someone might imagine but it's the truth and i think the book it should be allowed to speak for itself as fantastic as all this material is and i do find it very challenging to to believe this material but nonetheless there it is and uh, i think that we are in we have already been engaged in a, an interplanetary war and that we've been we are continuing to have these skirmishes and my only hope is that it doesn't escalate into anything worse that humanity finally uh, gets its act together and We have to become good intergalactic neighbors, and we don't do that by putting atomic
0: weapons into space. Hopefully uh, our society will pay heed to what you are explaining in this book. And I think one of the things that's probably our greatest gift is having the ability to think for ourselves and evaluate facts and documentation your book Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials lays this out really well it's a great read I highly recommend it to our audience I want to thank you for coming on our show this evening and for sharing your findings during this interview I know well, thank
2: you so much really I, I really appreciate oh, your, your generosity of I appreciate your generosity of time in this and um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity I, I feel we had a good discussion and uh, I hope we can do absolutely. it again sometime
0: I would, I would say because of the topic and it and its scope and its depth and the fact that you took all these incredibly intriguing aspects of this topic and tied it into such a well-blended narrative. Uh, I definitely would love to have you back on the show in the future. And uh, I want you to keep in touch with us. Uh, please do. And keep me posted. If uh, Do you have any, any type of uh, readings or anything coming up in the future to promote your book? Or is there anything that you're doing in the near future in case our audience is interested in, attending any events or anything like that?
2: Well, uh, doing this show, this is the most important thing right now, and I've got some other uh, programs coming up. Um, So I'm concentrating mostly on uh, discussing it in in public as we've done here
0: tonight. Well, that's beautiful. I will do my best to uh, share this information through our audience and through our listeners and through social media. But I, I really want to thank you. So you did such a phenomenal job explaining your perspective here, and I I deeply appreciate that.
2: Well, the the pleasure is all mine. Like I said, I'm very grateful (laughs) for the opportunity.
0: Okay. Well, great. Well, well, thanks again for coming on our show. Oh, thank you. um, Keep me in mind. (laughs) uh, I certainly shall. interview to revisit some, because we we could definitely revisit more of this stuff in the future in a secondary episode. Because I can tell you right now, we hardly scratched the surface. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we can cover on the more modern wars and everything else. I would love to do that in the future with you.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it very much.
0: Same here. Same here. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Good night.
0: I just want to let everyone in our audience know that this book, Military Encounters with Extraterrestrials, is a great read. It really does lay out 100-plus years of chronicled information regarding how our military and other militaries have encountered directly extraterrestrial aircraft, and that there's been a lot more going on than meets the eye. One of the things I love about this show is having the ability of challenging current paradigms. Right now, we live in a world where the public disclosure of encounters with extraterrestrials isn't thoroughly revealed. I believe in the future, at some point, we will have greater opportunities of learning the truth behind these type of topics. And I'm excited that someone like Frank Joseph has dedicated his personal time and effort to create this book, because it is a great read. It's not only entertaining, but it also forces anyone who wants to read this topic, about this topic, to open your eyes and look beyond the pale, so to speak, to, to view this topic from a more well-rounded point of view. And that's something that I welcome everyone in our audience to think about. I want to thank everyone for supporting the show. You can check out our website, radio.com. If you'd like to reach out and contact and, you know, Contact me regarding any of our episodes. You can email me directly, info at D, the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. I look forward to pro- providing you with uh, additional topics in the near future. We do have a list of phenomenal guests who will be appearing in the not-too-distant future. And um, I just welcome each of you. If you have any feedback to this show, please feel free to review us on iTunes, and your social media. Thank you so much.
1: Thank
2: you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your
1: paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore.
0: At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store, so you can save when you order during band practice. Or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Bakers app and save from wherever today. Bakers, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply,
1: subject to availability.
0: Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save one dollar each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Bakers, fresh for
1: everyone. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Subscribe today. Electricast Podcast. Welcome
0: to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices.
1: Electricast. electric, acid. electric acid.